Okay, uh, hi and welcome back to another Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 97. Now, um, it is uh, uh, in many ways coincidence that my next guest um, follows on extremely well from my last guest, Professor John Hawley. Um, today, also from Australia, I have Professor Louise Burke. Hi Louise, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And I'm pleased to know that I'm going to have the last word. <laughs> it, it, it is complete coincidence. It, people will not believe us. Um, uh, it's just the circumstances in which this, this podcast with you has come about is, is very neatly fit in in two ways, actually, following on from, from John. And yes, you will have the last word. Um, but also in the last episode, a couple of days ago, we discussed the importance of integrative exercise biology, i.e. looking at things from um, a bigger picture. Um, and there's all sorts of wonderful themes that came out of, of that discussion with John. Um, but as always, as, as I mentioned just off air, my, my interests here are, you know, how we, how we get hold of knowledge, how we qualify the, um, the, the, you know, the value of that knowledge in terms of, of ascertaining whether it really is the truth um, and in what context um, that information should be taken and potentially should influence, for example, practice or um, people's personal decision making. Um, so today um, I wanted to talk to you, well there's so many things we could talk to you um, about, um, but I think before actually we, we get into the topic of today's podcast, in the unlikely event that the listeners aren't um, totally sure who you are Louise, could you just give us a quick uh, background as to, as to who you are and what you get up to professionally? Yes, so I am the Head of Sports Nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport and I've been here for 27 years. Uh, I was five when I started, and <laughs> I've also um, hold a chair in sports nutrition at the Mary McKillop Institute for Health Research at Australian Catholic University, where John is. So my um, full-time job is at the AIS, but I have wonderful support from um, Mary McKillop Institute in terms of collaborations and research funding. So it's um, an absolute um, wonderful privilege to have that kind of support. Oh, absolutely. Well, listen, Louise, so I, it's worth just, I want to make a few sort of definitions on a number of things that we're going to get into, but also just to establish who, you know, who, who it is you actually are in terms of what you're saying and why we should be listening to you. And um, I think that'll become evident as we start this discussion. But, um, you know, a lot of times I've had a lot of discussions with experts. And by that, I mean, um, you know, people um, who are publishing research, they're conducting um, the studies in their labs, um, they're producing wonderful publications in, in, the, uh, in the literature. I've also had some great um, conversations with some practitioners, some elite level practitioners. I think an interesting thing with you is at first glance, if, if one was to look at your list of publications, the instant assumption is you're just, a, you know, you're an academic. And I don't mean that by... Um, having read the papers, but just by the sheer volume of, of work that you've contributed to the field is, is incredible. But is it fair to say that you're a, would you class yourself, Louise, as a practitioner who does research or, or do, do you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm a complete hobby researcher. The only reason I would do research is to find an evidence base on which to practice. 
And so one of the interesting things about the AIS where I work is that, you know, we have um, opportunities to do research, but we can only do it if there's a, a performance outcome driving it. So, you know, we need to be collaborating with coaches and athletes and to have um, a very clear performance message there. We can't just go and do stuff because it sounds fun or, you know, that it's the latest um, thing in the alphabet soup that's been found and the muscle that needs to be further teased out. And, you know, John and I have um, wonderful kind of conversations. You know, he'll send me a rat paper and I'll say, yes, well, I'll read that when they start putting rat races into the Olympics or, or um, I'll be more interested in that alphabet soup when um, they start taking biopsies at the Olympics and say, great, you know, you, you've won the prize for the, um, the most AMPK, so there's the gold medal. So, we're, we're, I mean, I'm just joking, obviously, because I understand that, um, that animal models sometimes and certainly the mechanistic papers um, inform, you know, some of the, the work that I do, but by themselves, they're, you know, they're not enough. And in often cases, there's a bit of a disservice there because... You know, sometimes we get so caught up in um, mechanisms and um, we just assume that the muscle's driving everything. And so you can see things changing in the muscle and often people measure that and say, well, well here's the latest thing that's going to enhance sports performance. But when you do the, the um, study where you see what the effect of that is on performance, it often doesn't translate into a performance gain. And so one of the things that I've learned over time is just how really difficult it is to measure performance um, in a way that's meaningful to an elite athlete particularly, but also how um, our bodies are incredible. There's a lot of redundancy and a lot of um, alternate pathways and a lot of ways in which we can alter metabolism or alter some physiological function, but it doesn't lead to a, a performance change. So we can't always just assume, you know, when you read that um, clever new paper with the, the um, mechanism or the, the new signalling pathway member that's been discovered, that it's going to have a, a, a translational effect to um, the world of sport. Yeah, the, the, I've, I mean, the, the, as I said, this is episode 97, so I've been privileged to talk to all sorts of wonderful um, people um, about these things. And there is a theme that comes up, which is, you know, the, 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 the rocket science, as we'll call it, the alphabet soup, as you put it. Um, it's all incredibly important, but we just need to, we need to be very mindful about what that information is, where it's come from, and, and, and what it's actually meant, you know, to translate to. You that, use that word translate. And I think translation is a, is a key problem, particularly when we get out of the realm of sports scientists, uh, sports nutritionists, academics, who, who have an understanding of, of what, or for the most part, have an understanding about what the, the researchers, the scientists are trying to say. It, it, it diffuses out into the bigger, wider world, i.e. the athletes, the recreational fitness people. And um, I know you're a great fan of social media, um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, that, is, you know, that is something we have to deal with. And I know as a practitioner myself, I'm constantly battling with my athletes who are getting information from um, social media and you know, friends and, and colleagues. And there's a lot of noise there that we have to try and rise above. And I, and I always wonder whether or not the scientists are truly paying attention to that because the noise that they're making is often drowned out by this, you know, this bigger level of noise. And, and it's important because at the end of the day, it's all 
there to, um, again, I love your word inform. I, I'm not such a fan of evidence-based. I like the word evidence-informed. Um, and that is the issue. There's a lot of, of confusion and misdirection. You know, it, 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 I, yeah, so one of the big things that has come up um, is you can do something and there's science behind it, but should you do something is something the practitioner or the athlete needs to think about. How, how do you feel about that concept particularly? Oh, look, it, it's a, a, a perennial problem to know at what stage do you have enough confidence to make a, a recommendation to change something. Mm. And, you know, sometimes when you work at the elite end of sport, it's very tempting to say, oh, well, we should be completely proactive, that even if there's a tiny chance that it'll it'll change performance for an athlete, we should be jumping on this. And, of course, when you get to the privileged um, level where you are working with elite athletes, sometimes it's easy to fall in, under that spell of wanting to be really important to that person. And, of course, you always feel as if you're more valuable to a, an athlete if you're the one that's saying, here, I've got something new, rather than being the sort of the conservative, boring oh, there's, you know, there's really no evidence for that, so I wouldn't be bothered trying it. So there's a lot of things that try and push you in the direction of, of being perhaps um, you know, more proactive than sometimes you deserve to be based on um, straight yeah. evidence. No, I, uh, I had a wonderful conversation uh, in a previous podcast um, not so long ago with Michael Joyner, who I know you know also, and... Uh, um, I mean, it, it was a highly memorable podcast, we'll say, Louise. Uh, he, he, he's got very strong values and, and opinions on keeping things simple and basic first, which is so important, obviously, to be grounded in, you know, mastering, you know, the basics. I think the problem is, 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 is everyone able to actually determine what the basics are and the relevance of those basics? And it, it, it's, it's incredibly... Um, how can I say, tempting for us as consumers of knowledge to try out this new stuff. You know, we, we, we're, it's thrown at us in all sorts of ways. Um, okay, not everyone's getting access to the uh, subscription journals, but now there's open access journals. There's like this, there's podcasts, there's conferences. Um, continuing professional development or continuing education is becoming a, a big thing. The, I guess the, the temptation, though, is is to, to, to go down all those new paths, but not necessarily at the expense of, of the basics. I mean, since you're so highly involved, Louise, in the, the development of our profession in terms of, of knowledge, do you, I mean, is, well, I, I know the answer to this, but I, I think it'd be good for the listeners to hear. I mean, you know, how much of an effort do you feel that, that you, you try to make about keeping us grounded? Well, look, I try and do it for a couple of reasons because um, I think that everything in life has got a sort of finite value to it and whether it's money or time or, or um, an investment of your mind, if you like, that you can only really do a, a number of things well. And so if you've got an athlete who's you know, very suggestible or you've got a, a service provider who wants to be really important and come up with all the latest and greatest and has a really sort of a shotgun approach to things or has a, you know, overload approach to things, I think at the end it's to, dis it's to disadvantage because I don't think it's, um, you know, useful to the athlete to be, you know, just jumping on every new thing that happens without proper proper investment and maybe the, the layering of things. I think you're, you know, referring to getting the basics right and then sort of adding to it and adding to it and knowing when the, the next opportunity might be to... Um, 
layer in something else. But you know, I think if you if you too ad hoc with it, it's eventually to your detriment because you know you just won't get things right. And whether the even the placebo effect you won't get right because you can't really believe in absolutely everything that you do if you if you're adding a new thing all the time. I think even if you know you feel that there's um just a psycholog psychological boost to um trying something new, I think doing that in a very specific way is really important as well. So I'm I'm probably um measured about the way that I go about things and you know try and work with the athlete to layer things and get the, the big things done right firstly. Um, you know, we talk about sprinkles on icings on cakes in terms of, you know, how we might take that very new thing and consider it a sprinkle and it's really not going to be robust enough in itself or special enough in itself until you've got the cake and you've iced it yeah. and then you find the right time to, to put the sprinkles on. So um, that's that's the kind of values that I would like to try and promote both to athletes and service providers and that, you know, you have the patience and the confidence that you, you'll get further along where you want to be if you take that sort of um, more informed approach, if you like. Absolutely. Well, I, I love the analogy of a cake with sprinkles on top uh, since we're on sports nutrition. <laughs> 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 um, but it is so true. It is so true. Throughout the ages, people have used simple, you know, um, analogies or parables or whatever sphere you want to be in. You know, it is, it is a great way to deliver information well look since um you you mentioned um a carbohydrate rich food i think it's a, a perfect segue <laughs> into what i wanted to get into so um for people that have been listening for a while they'll they'll know that i've touched upon this a lot and this would be with many people that you know two years ago i had my first podcast with john and we we were um we spent a lot of time talking about carbohydrate availability and um training adaptations and performance and that podcast stands very well and we discussed that a bit in the last episode a few days ago um i spoke through um you know james morton um, um a lot about the mechanistic stuff about that and um trent stellingworth we had a, a really awesome conversation about the applied practical sides of that um but um, and then I know that recently the, you um, contributed to the recent review by ACSM, and um, actually I I did three podcasts with Travis Thomas all about that that paper. Um, oh, and um, yeah, no, it was a great great paper. So everyone's got to listen to, to read that paper and listen to the podcast. And also, I know that you just published recently your reflections on that position stand in ACSM's health and fitness journal, which is an excellent summary um sort of pragmatic take-home points from that that everyone should read I'll, I'll add all of these papers and links in this podcast episode for listeners but um yeah so coming to the point of of today um it, it's amazing how it is still a raging uh debate particularly in um you know the uh, uh the social media sphere and and i mentioned noise and there's a lot of noise going on about the benefits of the low-carbohydrate, um, high-fat diet. And um, there's a, a, what I love in one of your um, papers, actually, um, it was your 2015 paper, your review article on re-examining high-fat diets for sports performance. Did we call the nail in the coffin too soon? Um, which I'll link to. Um, but you talk about um, the difference, and I love this phrase, between um, what we know and what 
is basically an enthusiastic discussion. <laughs> um, and that is important yeah. because some, you know, I, I talked about parables earlier, actually. So speaking of parables, it, it, there are areas in nutrition more than anywhere, I think, where people take upon something like a religion and, and they'll fight for it, literally fight for it. And you see that on social media and people are very invested um, in their position on that without necessarily having all the facts. And yeah, we could talk about, you know, dissonance and bias and all that stuff. But just, just quickly, um, why is it that years later, uh, despite the evidence, and I know you've got another paper that's come out in 2017, which we'll get into in, in, a, in big detail now, but I mean, what, why is this debate still raging on, you think? Well, I think, you know, a lot of what you've already talked about, how a lot of information now comes from social media or, or um, formats where there's very, very brief information transferred so you know 140 characters is supposed to be a way in which you can get a message across and so the um the upshot of all that is that it tries to simplify things into black and white observations rather than understanding as you say the context being so important and also the complexity and that um you know one of the things that is wonderful about human beings is that we are adaptable Mm. But we're also able to do a whole range of things. And so there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to the whole range of activities that humans want to do in sport or any other aspect of life. And people forget that. And I think, you know, what you said about it being a religion is, is really true because, it, you know, it's, it really challenges people's core to the, you know, if, when they're challenged with an idea that um, doesn't fit their particular religion, you know, it's, 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 or it could be a football team. You know, you you, um, you cheer for your football team and you cheer for them whether they're winning or losing because they're always right. They're always your team. Mm. And it's almost like every bit of evidence that people see now, um, you know, it, it, it has to be put in that um, black or white um, situation. One, you know, one of the other things I think um, we're seeing around us now is just this recognition of the um, the truthiness or the the post-truth um which i've you know returned the, the scienceiness of things where um, people believe if it sounds right it, it is and so their um their need for proof or their recognition of what proof is has really changed Asuka um, askey sent me a, a wonderful cartoon the other day and it has um descartes saying i think therefore i am and then it's got the, the post-truth gentleman saying, I believe, therefore I'm right. <laughs> That's really, you know, what it comes down to. People feel that if they strongly believe in it and if, it, if they can feel it in your gut, as um, Stephen Colbert says about um, truthiness, then it must be right. And they have no other way of being able to um, distinguish, you know, evidence not fitting their um, paradigm. Mm. Well... No, I think I, you're, you're spot on there. So, uh, as I mentioned before we recorded, I'm particularly interested in that area. That's where my own research has been, how we use knowledge and establish truth in terms of expert performance as a practitioner. It's all very interesting. So I think, you know, one of the best ways of approaching this discussion now uh, on this topic is what everyone has to do is press reset on their brain and go, right, ignore all those sort of biases and you know interests and so on and just be completely dispassionate about this and, and look at the facts as we have them but also 
ensure that we're bearing in mind the context of application. And th this comes up a lot, you know, um, I mentioned the phrase earlier, you can do it, but should you? And it's the, it's, yeah, you can. There, of course there's evidence that low carb, high fat can, can have, um, you know, interesting uh, uh, impacts in terms of adaptation. You talk about this in your paper quite openly, you know, there's the, the, some fantastic increases in fat oxidation and so on. But the thing is, is an athlete isn't just oxidizing more fats when they perform or um, that there's a combination of factors that delivers performance. And at the end of the day, it's, a, it's who crosses that, that line at the end, who gets the gold medal. And, and that's the perspective we need to come at this. You know, if, if, you're, if you're just someone who out of preference wants to do this and you're not worried about winning a race, that's a whole different conversation. Um, and one of the things I find really fascinating is that um, we can understand... Um, the philosophy or principles behind one aspect of sports performance in a, in a very complicated and complex and sophisticated way, and yet we're not willing to um, use that same logic around other parts. So if you're dealing with, with an athlete who, as you said, wants to enhance their performance and compete at a reasonable level, they understand that training then needs to be a periodised and gradual and graduated approach to improving all characteristics in their body that enable them to be able to perform whatever exercise they do, understanding that their event is going to have a whole lot of different characteristics that they need to gradually accumulate all the, you know, the characteristics behind. And so... No one who is an elite athlete would say, to run a marathon, I'm going to train for that by going out and running 20K at the same pace every day. You know that athletes train with different kinds of sessions and some sessions are around developing a, a um, high end, some are around you know, maybe resistance training, some are around a, a more recovery model with a, a lower intensity aspect to them and they're all developing different physiological characteristics and psychological characteristics that are going to be important in, in um, the event. Yeah. So why would you then have a, a, a black and white approach to nutrition that says that every time I train I'm going to do this under conditions of low carbohydrate availability where I'm applying the same stimulus from the nutrition perspective to the muscle and so it's only ever going to be able to adapt in a single way. It just doesn't make sense that you would be sophisticated at one level, but then so black and white when it comes to another aspect. Well, I think it's it, it, like many things in the world in which we live, you know, um, one, one follows the path of least resistance and so, so goes it with thought processes. Uh, it's just nice and simple to have black and white, isn't it? Um, <laughs> otherwise, it's bloody complicated. I, I said to John, and I've said this to loads of people, having um my main interest is in performance nutrition and it's exciting times nowadays particularly with the emergence of molecular biology and our understanding of how you know periodized nutrition can have profound impacts on um adaptation and you know the, this whole crosstalk between muscle and organs and you know the the, the influences of you know um carbohydrate manipulation on all sorts of parameters like even mitochondrial biogenesis stuff like that. it's amazing 
Um, but it, it, you know, if one is only going to go black or white, I think we're oversimplifying clearly. Um, mm. So, Louise, so right, let's just define because I think it's always important to define things here. So, firstly, could you just quickly define what we mean by low carbohydrate and high fat? Well, there's different versions of it around, but the most um, popular at the moment um, is the ketogenic low-carb, high-fat diet, where carbohydrate is restricted to generally less than 50 grams a day with the idea that that will keep you in continual ketogenesis over the day, that you're restricting carbohydrate to the point that your body's needing to produce a lot of ketone bodies. Um, the protein intake of that diet also needs to be kept quite um, moderate because you're trying to reduce the degree to which protein intake can have a gluconeogenic fate and, and, and um, metabolise to glucose. And this is a thing that a lot of people misunderstand because a lot of people don't recognise that the diet is actually very high in fat, usually above 75 up to 80% of energy from fat. And it's very difficult to achieve those um, food ratios with without a lot of um, nutrition knowledge and special tailoring of, of the food that you eat. A lot of people, when you ask them about the, the diet that they say they're on, when, they're on a, when they tell you that they're on a, a, a low-carb, high-fat diet, they'll be telling you that they're eating, oh, lots of meat and bacon. And um, you know, what they describe really isn't the, the true um, recipe that's being promoted. This is, this is based on work that Steve Finney did and Jeff Bollock um, and Tim Noakes are also um, recently involved with. So that's the model that's getting most of the airplay that um, I see at least today. And what that diet's going to do is provide a very, very low um, carbohydrate availability from dietary sources, but it's going to force the muscle to learn to um, oxidise fat, even at high intensities of exercise. And the, um, the body's going to have an environment of um, ketones also, which may have both a metabolic fate as well as some other um, claimed physiological actions. So, no, so thank you. Great. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an important point that people refer to terms like proteins, fats and carbohydrates, but of course not everyone correctly interprets those terms appropriately. Even professionals, there are different you know, people have slightly different ways of explaining things like the word carb, you know, uh, sometimes people include vegetables, sometimes people include only starches and, you know, it gets a bit complicated. So that's why I like mm. to try and start everything with, you know, define, you've got to define so many things because, well, it's the context conversation anyway. Um, so, right. So as I said, we're, we're pressing reset. Um, we're going to be dispassionate about this, this next bit. Um, in terms of unpacking the evidence then, Louise, um, not anecdotes, not, you know, what apparent athletes do or don't do, but in terms of what's been properly researched um, and the evidence as we see it in, in the sort of the court of law, so to speak, on this topic, um, let, let's, let's just quickly talk about then what, what you know to be the case and what's not the case. And, and we can have, you know, some positives and also in the grander schemes of actual performance, we should look at that too. But what, what is it we actually know about this? Well, until recently, the only study that had been done in trained individuals of that type of ketogenic low-carb, high-fat diet was a single paper from 1983 from Steve Finney. 
And this was a, a remarkable study, and you've got to give a lot of credit to Steve for doing it. It was very well controlled in the sense of um, the cyclists who participated were living in a metabolic ward, and so they had their food um, supplied to them, and it was very closely monitored. And so these five subjects um, undertook a, a four-week intervention with this low-carb, high-fat diet um, and did a performance trial before and after it. So they had a week of being on a higher-carbohydrate diet, their usual diets, before they started and did a performance trial. And then they did four weeks of exposure to this low-carb, high-fat diet and repeated the, the the performance and if you were seeing me here I'm putting quotation marks around the performance because it was a an endurance task the, the cyclists had to cycle to exhaustion at about 60 to 65 percent of vo2 max so it's not measuring performance as, as we would consider it in sport it's measuring exercise capacity or endurance and it was done at a very modest um, exercise intensity. So that might be the average speed that the peloton is cycling at in the Tour de France, but it's certainly not the you know, sort of type of exercise intensity that most endurance events are done at. And even in the um, Tour de France, we know that the winning moves are made by people who are doing much higher intensity exercise than that. They're surging up hills or breaking away or sprinting to the line. So although being able to exercise at those modest intensities is part of endurance or ultra-endurance sport, for us it's not the, um, the successful uh, or the success-determining um, type of exercise. The other thing about the study was that it was done under fasted conditions. So when these exercise capacity tests were done, subjects were overnight fasted and just drank water during the trial. And so I think you've got the perfect circumstances for that trial under which being adapted to be able to burn fat should have provided an advantage if there was to be an advantage. Mm. Because you've got modest intensity exercise, you've got no carbohydrate support in the high carbohydrate trial. There was an order effect in the in the study. So the subjects did their high fat trial, four weeks of training after having done the carbohydrate trial. So I think everything was sort of um, rooting for the high fat trial, if you like. Mm. But the overall outcome was no difference in performance. There was no improvement in the mean endurance um, time for the group. But if you have a look at what happened to the, the five subjects, the results really were... were um, directed by one of the subjects who had a much larger time to exhaustion after the high-fat trial. For the other subjects, the, the results were, you know, were um, quite similar and two subjects went backwards. So overall, we have no mean improvement, which surprises some people because the way people talk about this study is that here is the definitive proof that the low-carb, high-fat diet enhances performance. So... When you have a look at that, you say, well, under those conditions, there wasn't an overall or clear advantage to the high-fat um, trial. Mm. And there were other um, parts of these, the study where the authors themselves noted that it was remarkable that in that period of time, the body could retool the muscle so that it was able to burn very high rates of fat oxidation during exercise. So that was remarkable. But they noted that it was at the expense of the cyclist's ability to do high-intensity work. So I read that as very young, um, as a student, actually, and 
thought, oh, that's, you know, really fascinating and it's great that someone's been able to spend that much time and effort to do a study like that. It shows us how plastic the muscle is, but it doesn't really hold any any interest to me as someone who wants to provide cyclists or other endurance athletes with a, a sports nutrition strategy that might enhance their performance because it really didn't apply to the world of sport that I work in where high intensity exercise is important. And as I said, even, even in the group where there was potential for fat adaptation to work, we didn't see a clear benefit. So that's the only study that has been done and it's sort of been resurrected in um, the last five years and, and you know forming a lot of the the interest in the in the current idea mm. so we felt that um, it was important to go back and tackle it again so last year i was able to um to do a fantastic study with the involvement and, and support of um international race walking community one of the athletes with whom i work is um jared talent who's um gold medalist from london 50k walk and he was able to um, help me to recruit a, a large number of um, you know, very well-trained, world-class race walkers to come to the AOS and, and do the study. Um, we call the, the project Supernova. And we were able to look at the effect of a three-week intervention during an intensified training block with three different approaches to the nutrition support for that. So we had um, one group following high carbohydrate availability um, nutrition support. So they ate um, most of the energy in their diet coming from carbohydrate and it was spread over the day so that every time they trained, the carbohydrate was provided before, during and after to maximise the amount of carbohydrate fuel that was available for the training sessions. And then we had the low carb, high fat approach, which was the, the prescription that I gave you before where um, carbohydrate was very restricted. And then we had a, a third group who did the periodised carbohydrate diet that we feel is um, moving towards that more sophisticated approach where some of the sessions are done with high carbohydrate availability to promote good performance and, and good carbohydrate oxidation opportunities. But other sessions are done in the week with low carbohydrate availability to drive adaptation. And um, so we had these athletes for three weeks training with us with everything being provided to them so that we were very clear about um, the, the diet that they consumed. And we also monitored all their training. And pre and post that intervention, we had them do a, a 10K race, a, a race walking event. And we had it under real life conditions where it was sanctioned by IAAF. There was prize money. There were outside competitors. Um, and we looked as one of the aspects of the interest was what would happen to the performance of, of um, their 10k walk as a result of the training they were doing and the different dietary support. Um, so this is the probably the, the best study that I feel I've done to date in terms of um, you know, tackling a, a big subject with am, ambitious insights to, to gain and um, being able to work with world-class athletes and, and the beauty of the study was that the athletes were really invested in finding out the results. I mean, they really care about um, wanting to know what the evidence was saying themselves because it's, you know, it's, it's their livelihoods. And so, you know, they were completely not just um, compliant with the study, but they were invested and committed to the study so that mm. we're all there trying to, to see what would happen. 
Yeah, no, it, I mean, look, it's great, um, you know, to hear this because one thing that instantly comes to mind is there's so much of that enthusiasm and yet so little evidence. <laughs> there's a lot of conjecture. And uh, I, I guess what's happening is lots and lots of people, and I certainly had fell into this trap when I first got interested in this topic, is looking at the little parts and going, well, you know, this increases fat oxidation. Um, you know, this um, has this effect, this has that effect. But when you combine everything all together, um, including preference and um, all the other things that are involved in, in a human being being involved in this process, it, it, it seems clear that, um, you know, that uh, there really isn't a whole lot of um, persuasive arguments, at least as far as I can see, that, that, that you know, that goes for it. Um, and now that this study of yours has come out, you know, I think, I think, I think a really big thing that, that I saw, which of course you make a big point of that, is, is this business of you can certainly go down that path of low carb, high fat, and there's all sorts of benefits that come out of it, but it's at the expense of a few things, which if winning a race in certain types of events is your goal, it's going to be at the expense of that as far as we understand um and this you know i think there's two terms that that come out at me that i'm interested in one is you know exercise economy because you don't hear them talking about that term um and the other one's metabolic flexibility perhaps we could just just quickly because i know most people understand what we're talking about but just in case they don't exercise economy and, and metabolic flexibility why are those two important terms in this discussion well, we'll start with the metabolic flexibility, and to me, that is um, a term that describes the, the muscle's ability, the body's ability to be able to use a whole range of fuel sources to provide the ATP, and that you have enough of the fuel sources and the capacity to integrate all your fuel systems to be able to have a you know continuous supply of power or ATP production to suit the needs of your event. And, you know, so that's having all the systems working, if you like, and being able to integrate. And one of the things that we were worried about or, um, in fact, saw with the, um, the low-carb, high-fat diet is that it certainly does increase your ability to burn fat, but it's at the expense of your ability to oxidise carbohydrate. And so you haven't gained metabolic flexibility by doing that. You've, in fact, reduced it because you've taken a very important fuel system power generating system and you've sort of disabled it that's the cost of, of increasing fat oxidation and the reason that's important is the exercise economy so often when people look at the um the body's fuel stores and you can get nice little diagrams that show you the kind of capacity of the adipose tissue and the intramuscular triglycerides as fat stores in the body and you can add up sort of the number of kilojoules or calories that people are carrying around with them from those sources. And it's, it just absolutely dwarfs the amount of carbohydrate that we can store at any one time from glycogen and blood glucose. And so it is really mesmerising to think, wouldn't it be better to be able to use the stuff you've got plenty of instead of relying on the stuff that's going to run out? And I can see the, um, the, you know, the idea that fat is more quote, economical in the sense that there's more of it, it's got more calories per gram, and so it looks like it's going to be a more reliable and, and important fuel source. 
But the problem is to oxidise it, you need oxygen. And when you have a look at the amount of ATP that's produced for the um, amount of oxygen that needs to be sent to the mitochondria to oxidise fuels, you find that carbohydrate is more economical. You can produce more ATP for the amount of oxygen that's delivered to the mitochondria if you're using carbohydrate as a fuel and fat. And you know, it's, when I've spoken to, um, to some of the older physiologists who came from very classical training backgrounds like Ron Morn, and you talk to them about what do you think about this high fat diet? And this is this is you know way before we were interested in even doing the study. You know, Ron just laughed and said, "Why would you want to be able to burn fat? <laughs> you're just um, you're reducing your economy. And for all these people that want to try and break the two hour marathon, the last thing you need to do is to burn fat because if you've got a certain limit to the amount of oxygen that can be delivered to the mitochondria, then you've got to get the most ATP from that. That eventually becomes your limiting um, thing, if you like, those high intensities of exercise that we want to sustain in endurance events. And so you're wanting to try and throw as much carbohydrate through the mitochondria to make the most of the limited amount of, of oxygen you can have. That's exactly what we found with our, our study, that we could certainly make our fat-adapted athletes burn more fat. And we had some prodigious rates of fat oxidation, you know, higher than anybody else has reported in the literature. So you can certainly get a muscle to burn fat. But the problem is that to do that, it now requires more oxygen to be able to, to maintain that, that output. And so we found that when our fat-adapted athletes were compared to the carbohydrate um, burning athletes, all their previous cells before they went on the diet, they were now requiring more oxygen to run at the same speed. And so we found that over the course of the training, people improved their VO2 max and the carbohydrate-supported athletes became more economical because now they had more oxygen capacity and they were able to use less of their maximum to run at the same speed. But the poor old fat mice, we called them, um, squandered their new VO2 max by having to use more of it to be able to keep at the same speed. So there was a reduction in economy, which we feel is part of the reason that the, um, the fat-adapted athletes weren't able to perform as well in the 10K race at the end as their um, carbohydrate-supported athletes. Yeah, I, I mean, as I inferred earlier, I think what's particularly exciting is the you know, the, the direct effects that nutritional manipulation can have on the body, on, on the muscle, on the mitochondria. And as you're saying there, you know, it, it, it's remarkable, for example, how, how you can end up with incredibly high levels of fat oxidation. And, but of course, that brings us back to that phrase of you can, but should you? Um, but I, I think to back up a bit, because there are benefits, of course, um, particularly to certain people in certain scenarios, to having a healthy, um, you know, metabolism, shall we say, quote unquote, where they are um, good at oxidizing fats and they're not, you know, consuming carbohydrates all day long. And of course, that brings us down the more clinical side of things with, you know, highly metabolically inflexible people such as diabetics, that sort of thing. Um, and there's been some good research. In fact, my colleague, um, who, who works at Good Performance, uh, did his PhD on this area, 
um, and has shown, you know, there's, there's really good health benefits to um, increasing fat oxidation in, in, um, in the general public. Um, and there's, uh, you know, and I, I keep mentioning that um, athletes aren't just athletes, they're also human beings and they suffer from all the same problems the rest of us do. And they're not always training. Um, they do have periods of rest and recovery. So in the bigger picture, in the broader picture of, of a human being who happens to be an athlete, um, you mentioned the word periodization and so on. But, you know, is there a place for this? Um, you know, or, or are we, if you're an athlete, if that is your label, you, you know, you, you, you just need to go down this, this um, um, carbohydrate, um, you know, uh, approach. I mean, what, what, what's your view of that? Well, my intuitive feeling is that the periodization is the, is the best angle because, as I said before, that you're providing different kinds of stimulus to the, to the muscle and that if you apply it to the right training sessions, you might be trying to amplify the effect that the exercise is supposed to have by changing the nutrition environment in which it's done. So that all makes sense. What was interesting in our study, though, was that we didn't see an advantage over the high carbohydrate availability approach to doing the periodization, which sort of stumped us because I've been involved in a couple of other studies with um, the French group from INSEP, with um, Lorianne Marquet and Christophe Houseworth, and we've been able to show in sub-elite athletes that a periodized carbohydrate approach has performance benefits over just having a high carbohydrate diet all the time but not in our, um, our, our very hard training elite athletes. And we're not sure why that is. It might be that um, if you were doing very high volumes of training and we had some athletes that were walking, you know, 170K a week in this study, maybe you, you just can't eat enough carbohydrate, even if your diet is completely flooded all the time and you're spreading it around all your training sessions. Maybe even under those conditions, you still have pockets of the day where you have low carbohydrate availability simply because the amount of training that you're doing is, you know, is, is metabolising it, it's removing it from the, the environment. And so even a high-carbohydrate diet is periodised because of the, the training volume. And so periodising it further um, may create a small extra benefit but not as large as when you're doing it in a, a group who doesn't do as much training and um, is relying more on the diet to create the, the, the pockets of the low-carbohydrate availability over the day. Yeah, I, I mean, as you're mentioning this, of course, we mentioned earlier, you know, there's a need to define what we mean by these things. And speaking to lots of people about protein, for example, like Stu Phillips, Kevin Tipton and, and so on, um, even down to the molecular guys like uh, Lee Green and um, Hamilton and, and Barr and, and that lot. Problem is, is lots of people aren't defining what they mean by things. And, and uh, you know, when we're talking about high or low protein, my idea of low, you know, normal protein is someone else's idea of high protein and blah, blah, blah. So when we talk about, you know, high carbohydrate, I mean, there comes a point where there's a difference between high carbohydrate and excessive carbohydrate though isn't that we're not just advocating yeah you just sort of you know inhale carbohydrates all day long there's still a point where 
well, I guess like like um, James Morton um, um, came up with in one lecture I attended, where you know we're not talking about low carb, we're not talking about high carb, we're talking about smart carb because then you go down the other path of well, too many calories, etc. Still too many calories. So, mm. um, I mean, where, you know, where, where how do we approach that um, from a practical perspective? You think? Yeah. Well, look, I think. You know, with what I would do with my own training, and I'm, I'm not someone that does 170k of race walking a week, is, I mean, I have periods of, or have training sessions that I do fasted and with it just water. I have other sessions that I do where I make sure that I've had some carbohydrate before and I have carbohydrate during because I'm practising what I'm going to do on race day in the marathon in some of the training sessions that I do. And I have some sessions where I try and refuel quickly after the session to recover for the next one. And I have some where it's not important and some that I even deliberately don't have carbohydrates straight afterwards to delay the refueling. So that's there all the different ways of, um, or some of the different ways of doing that periodised approach to carbohydrate. And that's that's probably the, the message that I think is the, the way of the future. Um, but as I said, it's, it was just interesting in our study that we didn't see that um, approach having greater benefits than having the carbohydrate more evenly spread over the week. But as I said, you know, we had athletes in, in our study who would walk 40K in the morning and then do a 10K session in the afternoon. Now, if you're doing that much training, I don't care what you eat between the two sessions, you will not replace glycogen. So that session in the afternoon will be done under conditions of lower carbohydrate availability, regardless of what you eat. So, you know, we're dealing perhaps um, with the group that were in the, the current study who were periodising just because of the training that they were doing. And probably um, the, the, the way of the future, though, is to be a bit smarter about it and, and accentuate it more by having those... Um, blacks and whites and shades of greys around all the different ways that you train with that carbohydrate approach. Yeah, I think I like to think a lot of this, particularly the, the, this knowledge that we're talking about is tools in the toolbox. It's, it's tools that are available for use. Um, you can use different tools for different scenarios, but also, you know, if it ain't broken, don't try and fix it. It's also something you need to be wary of. Sometimes there's times where you shouldn't use an intervention just because just you fancy it. Um, but oftentimes people, although they're, the tools are accessible to them, they don't necessarily know how to use them or why they're using them. And that's obviously why the mechanistic knowledge is very important that helps us give us an understanding. But at the end of the day, Louise, do you think a lot of this is going to boil down to just trying stuff to a certain extent um being logical but pragmatic about it and and being like we said evidence informed um yeah, I, mean, I think that's a, yeah. a really good summary of it it's it'll be um lots of good ideas in theory that you then need to to trial in your own scenario and we might all have the same <coughs> say, physiological outcome from, from doing that in some ways. There may be some outliers that have different approaches, but sometimes the, the psychological effects or the, the social and sort of um, other you know, things that are important in our lives may need to be engaged in the decisions as well. So, 
you know, you can have a hundred people who will all try something that's sort of evidence informed and they'll all come up with their slightly different version of it to suit all those other things that they're trying to, to sneak into their lives as well. Yeah, well, I, I mean, sort of a theme that came up in John's podcast that, um, and indirectly um, Michael Joyner's too, where we, we tend to be very reductionist in our approach to this, which is important for the lab studies, for the mechanistic stuff. But that doesn't mean we need to take a reductionist view as practitioners or consumers of this knowledge. I think it's just very, you know, it's very difficult for people to realise whether that information is more holistic, dare I use that term, um, or reductionistic. Um, I mean, if, if, if we sort of, well, actually, before I say that, I, I did have conversations with um, Professor Mike Gleason and also uh, Glenn Davison too. Um, in, we were talking about Immune and Neil Walsh as well. Um, it's amazing I've spoken to all these people. But, but basically, with regards to immune health, um, and whilst <clears throat> carbohydrates had nothing really to do with the conversation, it did come up. Um, and also with your colleagues, David Pine, we talked about um, probiotics, and I also spoke to Shona Halson about recovery. Um, everyone actually did mention indirectly that carbohydrates play a role um, in immune health, in you know uh, uh, the health of gut bacteria by virtue of you know the fiber and so on. Uh, 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 you, you, I, I think sometimes when I, because I referred to this reductionist thing, we sometimes forget what what these what other things these things do and we're so focused on strength power speed carbs fat but but we live we don't just train and we we eat food we don't just eat macros um do, do you i mean do you feel that from a practitioner's perspective we, we we sometimes maybe we should think about our 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 clients our audience as humans first um is that fair Absolutely. I think big picture is you know, something that's really lost in the, the current um, passion around this. And we've published the first paper from, from our supernova study, but we have a whole lot of data that we're still going through looking at some of those systems that might be perturbed due to the carbohydrate changes, certainly the immune system, but then it's flow-on effects to iron metabolism because of its effects on um, hepcidin. Um, we're also looking at bone markers because we know what happens with some changes to some of the cytokines and their effect on bone markers. So, you know, it, it, it may be that there's ways in which the muscle's adapting in a positive way, but at the same time, other parts of the, the body aren't enjoying the same benefits from a low-carbohydrate environment. And it may be that then you have to start balancing up, um, you know, for an athlete what's the most important thing to be doing in this session and if there are some detriments to doing it, when do I do it in this in, in my year or how many times can I afford to do it in a year so that I maximise the benefits but minimise some of the, um, the downsides to doing it. And, you know, those things may be different for each athlete and it may change from different times of the year. I mean, you might find that if you're someone who already has a, a sensitive immune system, then this kind of training isn't the right thing to be doing all the time or even any of the time. And it might be the worst time of doing it if you're training in a, a team environment where plenty of other people have got colds and flus and sniffling around you or, mm. um, you know, you're, you're in an athlete village and there's all sorts of, you know, too many people crowded in the same place with all their germs as well. So, you know, you might 
be better informed about thinking of the big picture if you can think of those things rather than just be thinking, oh, you know, what's happening to some of those signaling pathways in the muscle. So, look, I mean, some really important points there, and I, I hope everyone that's listening, some of whom will have a preference for the low-carb, high-fat, and that, that's fine. I just think, you know, everyone just needs to, like I say, press reset and think about it all dispassionately and say, look, we're just talking about the evidence. The evidence is maybe not so good. If you look at it from the bigger picture, and we're not just talking about anecdote and, and, and all that stuff, it, there's clearly a lot more to learn, and there's obviously more to mine out of your data you've just collected and I'm sure some other stuff will, will come up but um, I mean where, where where do you feel the future directions are with this um, no doubt it's exciting times but, but where do you feel we're going yeah look I mean I think we we want to spend a lot more time looking at the um, periodized approach because it has um, you know more subtlety and complexity and, and and shades of being able to alter the direction in which you're moving rather than that single stimulus, as I've just said. But we'll be looking at some of the bigger picture um, outcomes too to see if the effects on the muscle need to be thought of in balance with some of the other things that are happening in the, in the body. Um, and then I guess we'll be trying to um, help athletes decide you know, how to put their program together that takes into account not just what's happening with carbohydrate, but, you know, what's happening with all the other aspects of nutrition that we know are important around protein and micronutrients and, and good fats, etc. And, um, you know, somehow integrate it all into that plan that um, helps them train effectively and, and compete well, but also enjoy life. You know, there's, um, there's lots of things about food to love apart from just the nutrients it contains. So we need to make sure that we've um, kept that enjoyment factor and the, the pleasure of eating socially involved in the nutrition plan. Well, I think, you know, Louise, actually, I think that is a, an angle that is sorely, you know, I mean, it really should be discussed more because the influence of, you know, um, the familiarity of food, the pleasures we gain from food, the social sides of it have major benefits to our health and well-being and, and obviously that's going to impact um you know everyone in in ways that can only be good if if done appropriately and and uh well look anyway look i know it's getting late for you um we're at these sort of crazy time differences between the uk and australia but um it was uh, tricky getting you getting you onto this podcast mm -hmm. so i i really appreciate you know you sacrificing your time this evening louise um um, so, uh, for folks that want to learn more about Louise and what she's up to, I know um, you have some fantastic resources at the Australian Institute of Sport on your uh, in the nutrition section, isn't there? In fact, there's all sorts of great stuff. Um, what, how do people look that up? I'll put a link to it on on this podcast page. But just quickly, um, uh, where should people go to look at? Um, yes, so ozsport.gov.au is, is the website. Um, it's undergoing a bit of, of um, refurbishment at the moment, so not all our stuff is up at the moment. Um, but if you PubMed, you'll find some articles that might be of interest to, to read, including the, um, the Supernova study. We've tried in the last um, years to make a lot of the work that we do open access so that people can... Um, you know, to be able to download it without needing to 
pays journal subscriptions, etc. And um, you know, that's part of our way of trying to make better evidence-based work be available rather than just um, relying on those 140 character. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I, I did actually recall you um, referring to the Kardashian index. And I thought, I thought that was just sort of a turn of phrase. I looked it up and it is actually a paper. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a theme. So, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. I'm, uh, I'm going to try and work out what my own Kardashian impact is. I have got a few citations for my work, so uh, we'll see. I just get on the map, possibly. Um, thank you so much, Louise. Um, it's been great to, to share your knowledge. Um, I'll let you go now. Um, I um, would just like to encourage everyone to obviously check out this page where you can see all the links or link to the AIS uh, Louise's other outputs, ResearchGate account, that sort of thing. There's lots of great papers and resources there. Um, if you want to catch up with all the other podcasts, including one I did with John um, and uh, the whole backlog, this is 97 of these now. Just go to guruperformance.com where you also see all our other technical articles, info videos, infographics, and so on. So I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. <laughs>